0: Again, we thank you. We thank you so much (laughs) that even in eternity past, you came up with the plan to send your son that he would be our propitiation, that he would be our acceptable sacrifice, that we might be able to be forgiven for our sins and be placed in your family as we've received him. Father, again, we thank you that you spoke. You spoke first through the prophets, The written word, the spoken word, and now the incarnate word. That Christ himself has come. And that he has declared you to us. As we have seen him, we have seen you. We know what you're like because we've been able to watch Christ through the scriptures. Father, again, we thank you for this time of year. That just brings more precise thinking in our minds as far as all that you have done in the incarnation. Lord, we thank you that... That you have just given us understanding, that your spirit gave us understanding in our spirit, so that we might understand your word, we might understand why Christ truly came, not just to be a good example, but again to be the acceptable sacrifice. And we thank you, Father, that your spirit has given us faith to believe, that we've been able to put our faith and trust as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So as we just sang, we just thank you for your gift of love towards us. And we ask that we might be about your business now. May, May we live for your kingdom, not our own. Give us opportunity to share the good news with others, and may we take it. May we have boldness. May we have gentleness as we share. But Lord, may we share. And Father, I pray also that if there's anyone even here today that has never received the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior, that today might be their day of salvation. We ask that you would now guide us as we look at the principles that we need to use as far as studying your word, so that we might be good stewards of the mysteries of God, that we might be able to not only understand the mysteries, but again, we'd be able to proclaim, proclaim them to a dying world. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, today we're going to be in a number of passages next week we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 and then the start of the new year we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 so we have finally made it to Revelation but today we're going to be looking at how to study prophecy again we gotta have principles on how to study so that we make sure that we come out with the right interpretation and revelation. You know, the passage I read, Hebrews 1, verse 1, God has spoken. First of, all, first of all, spoke to us through the prophets, then through His Son, the final incarnate Word. But God has spoken. Just think about that. God has spoken. I mean, it just gives me like, yeah, thank you, Lord, for speaking. Thank you for wanting to communicate to us. We could be in a world of darkness and ourselves be darkened, right? And just our minds be darkened like we were before salvation, Ephesians talks about. That our hearts and our minds and our understanding would be in darkness and we would never understand the truth. We would never understand what God sought to do. And yet God has spoken. God not only spoke through the prophets and through His Son, But now he has given us light through the Spirit of God. He has given us life. He's given us light. He's given us understanding. He actually gives us what we call illumination. And and we find the fact that he wants to speak. He wants to be understood in Revelation 1 verse 1. Now we're not going to be there only to read the first five uh, words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. God wants us to know about His Son. That's what Revelation means. The revealing. The revealing. The declaration. The removing the cover from something. That's what Revelation means. The unveiling. He wants Christ to be, the Father wants Christ to be unveiled so that we might see all His glory. To do that properly, we, again, we need to have principles of, of interpretation. To see Christ clearly in the Scriptures, we need to go to the Scriptures with a certain way of thinking as far as how are we going to study the Scriptures. See, we can't look at the Scriptures. We can't look at prophecy. We can't look at especially Revelation. As Winston Churchill one time described the Soviet Union as, quote, a riddle... Wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. See, what Winston Churchill was saying about the Soviet Union was, you can't understand those people. I think sometimes that's how we look at Scripture. Or that's how we look at prophecy. Or for certain, that's how sometimes we look at the book of the Revelation, right? That the revelation is a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. Like, yeah, you can, you, can, you can give it your best shot, but don't be authoritative about it because you don't have that right. And that is wrong. That is wrong. Now again, I understand prophecy is hard. It's challenging. Why? Because there's so much symbolism found in the Old and in the New Testament. Yes, interpreting, it is difficult, but it is not impossible. And know you're saying, I came here for a Christmas message. That's next week. <laughs> Listen, there's nothing greater than to, to see Jesus Christ unveiled, right? I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. By the way, I sidelight, not in the notes, but man, I, is, is your Christmas going to be Christ-centered? Is it about family and food? Well, those are nice. There are no boys. My boys are coming home on Saturday. Yeah, I have been waiting for this for a number of weeks. I mean, just like... And I told my wife, I said... All, we always have 12 days of Christmas started yesterday. I said, this year, just whatever you want, just put it on my card. Debit card, not credit card. And, uh... <laughs> no... You know, I mean, I, and, and you who are older and have kids grown, uh, moved away, you, you know what I'm saying. But it's like, uh, I so want to see those kids. Um, can you imagine the anticipation, though, that, I mean, that we should have for Christ? I mean, let's make sure we don't lose sight of that He is the center. He is the center of our life. He is the center of every Sunday it should be, every day of the week. But especially during this Christmas season, sometimes it's it's sad. But do you remember that story where they had a party? I think I've told it a few times. They were having a Christmas party, no, no, it was a christening for a, a small little baby, and and they um, they, they they were going to have you know the baby and and uh, the party and everything else, and uh, the guests started coming in, and, and they kept throwing their coats. You know, the, the mother said, "We'll just throw the coats on the bed." And so the, you know, the, the people, as they came in, you know, this was about the baby, you know, and, you know, where's the baby? Well, you know, so, so they took off their coat, and, you know, it was a cold, you know, winter night, and they threw the coat on the bed, and the next, and, you know, visitor after visitor, where do you want me to take my coat? So I just throw it on the bed. And after about a half hour, they, you know, the party was ready to start, and they, they looked, at, wait, where is the baby? The baby was on the bed, and it suffocated. Now, I know that's, But you know what? I'm just saying that for this reason. Sometimes I think Christ is on the bed and we suffocate it with all the trappings of Christmas. You know? Let's make sure that Christ is always the center. Always the center of uh, what we are about. And especially during this Christmas season. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Lord has given prophecy not to confuse us. Let me say that. It's not to confuse us or to hide the truth from us but to help us understand it and be transformed by it. That's why prophecy has been given. Not to confuse us, not to be like that game at the uh, oh at the fair, you know, what is it? is it? Muskrat? What is that? Where you hit it, and then you have to hit it. And it Whack-a-mole. That's it. Thank you. Sometimes we feel like prophecy is like that. Got it. Nope. I guess that's not true. He wants us to get it. It's going to encourage us. It corrects us. It challenges us. It transforms us. In other words, prophecy, which again, prophecy is nothing more than a declaration of something to come. Much of the Bible has already been um, fulfilled. Prophecy has been fulfilled. But that is supposed to encourage us and, and uh, commit us to the Word and give us conviction that it's true and give us confidence in the Word and confidence in our God. And, and that's, what, uh, that's what prophecy and fulfilled prophecy and, and And that will happen if we have sound biblical principles that are bringing us to the passage, to the Bible, and then we're learning and we can have confidence because we know that the principles we're using are proper. So you're going to come out with the right interpretation. Well, let me, let me give you some principles. You remember the little um, adage, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you will feed him for a Right. We want to make sure that we're all able to feed ourselves properly on the Scriptures. One commentator wrote, The watershed issue in understanding all of Scripture, including Bible prophecy, is the method of interpretation one in- adopts. We call this hermeneutics. So again, when we say hermeneutics, it's nothing more than the principles, that, the principles that we use to study the Scriptures. Okay, It's the study of the principles that we use to study the Scriptures. Hermeneutics. The basic principles of interpretation that one uses will inevitably lead to certain conclusions about what a specific text or even an entire book of the Bible means. So again, what you use for the, you know, to use for interpretation is going to lead you to a conclusion. I always think of it like a, a map. Let's say I wanted to go see the boys in Rome, Georgia. That's where they're living, right near Rome, Georgia. And you give me a map. By the way, no GPS. That's cheating. You've got to use a map. Um, by the way, how many of you love your GPS? How many of you just say, man, that has made me so free? <laughs> but Let's say you had a map, but you didn't know how to read the thing. And you start out in Alfred Station, New York, and before long, you started seeing signs to Cedarville, Ohio. Now, by the way, you can get to uh, Rome, Georgia from Cedarville. But you've gone a long long way out of the way, right? I mean, whoa. Why? Because you didn't. And see, sometimes with Bible interpretation, same thing. If you don't know the principles, you're going to take. You may actually end up getting there, unfortunately. Maybe you don't even know how you got there. Or someone else told you. No, we want to get the principles down so we know how we got there. So when we look at Revelation, when we look at prophecy, when we look at the Second Coming, we say, okay, this is is why I believe what I believe, not only from Scripture, but this is how I got to that interpretation. Now again, unfortunately, many Bible students assume that prophetic passages need to be spiritualized. In other words, interpreted figuratively. That's what we call allegorized they change the interpretation method if they think the passage is prophetic. Now, I want you to get that. There are students of Scripture that as soon as they think that this particular passage is prophetic, they change the rules of interpretation. Now, does that sound logical to you? Wait a second here. Why not treat that the same way we would treat any other passage? So again, I, I want to I make sure that we, we do it consistently. That is why there is so much confusion when it comes to prophecy. I believe that is exactly the reason. Because methods and principles are being changed at the moment the person says, that's a prophetic passage. Whoa, we've got to stop here. We can't look at that normally. Roy Zuck, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, comments on the danger of using a different hermeneutic for prophecy. There's a danger in this. Quote, Nowhere does Scripture indicate that when we come to a prophetic portion of Scripture, we should ignore the normal sense of the words and overlook the meanings of words and sentences. The norms of grammatical interpretation should be applied to prophetic as well as to non-prophetic prophecy. End quote. So, the whole point is this. We need to be consistent. We need to be consistent in our interpretation. And with all that intro being said, let's go to the different principles. Principle number one. And this is, by the way, the queen of principles. This is the, this is the, the most important of the most important when it comes... Well, actually, that one and there's one other. There's a prince, too. But there's a queen. This is the queen. Um, the first one is this. Interpret prophecies literally. We call it the literal principle. Again, of all the rules, a literal interpretation is the heart, the core, the crux. But again, unfortunately, this one is so often misunderstood. And not only misunderstood, it often misstated. And I'm going to spend a few minutes here because you'll even read prophecy books and stuff, and, and, and they'll misquote and misstate exactly what the literal principle is. In other words, interpret prophecy literally. Um, this last week, we... Uh, we had to cancel home group. And I got on Facebook, I think it was. And I read... By the way, I'm not a Facebooker. I can, I can barely, you know, find my, pe- my wife... My, my, my daughter always asks, like, what's your password? I don't know. I mean, it's supposed to be automatic, you know. But Corey had put on the, the uh, Facebook page, Sorry, everyone. Remember, 6 o'clock at the Prince's next week for our Christmas party period, bring a dish, period. Now you say, well, what's, well, I was thinking, I I almost brought a dish here. All right, so I'm supposed to show up next week at, well, I mean, I'm at the Princeton, so everyone is going to come next week, and they're going to bring a dish. I'm not sure how that's helpful. Um, No, I mean, we know what that means. They're going to bring a dish to share, Right. Right? By the way, I love that stuff. That's, uh, <laughs> no, I you. Um, <laughs> see, what I'm trying to say is this. We use figures of speech all the time, and yet we are literal thinkers. And, w- and when you have a symbol, you're going to hear this a few times, when you have a symbol, it always has to go back to something that was literal. In other words, something uh, literal is the foundation, and you build off of that and, and, and into a, a symbolism metaphor, simile, and some whatever. Well, I mean, if I told you this, uh, my, my dog kicked the bucket. Well, any of you that know that idiom is not going to think, well, my dog went up and kicked the bucket. No, you know that my dog died. We use that all the time. See, when we talk about the literal principle, we're not talking about a wooden literalism. We are talking about a plain literal principle plain literal, or figurative literal. We're not talking about some slavish, rigid literalism, but we understand that the scripture in its normal sense includes what? Figures of speech, parables, hyperbole, simile, metaphor, symbolism. My dog kicked the bucket. That's just normal speech. When you go to prophecy, when you go to revelations, you've got to think that same way. You know what? He's gonna, there's going to be symbolism and figures of speech that by using those is going to magnify what the literal truth is. Magnify. He's going to put it in more... I'll give you a few in a moment. So again, the existence of any meaning for figures of speech, depends on reality of a literal meaning. There's a literal meaning, but the symbol is just helping to understand the literal. So again, it's not wooden, literal principle doesn't mean a wooden, strict literalism. It just means that the words of scriptures are to be interpreted the same way words are understood in ordinary, normal, plain use. I think you're going to find this refreshing. I hope you do. I hope in our study of Revelation, you start saying, wow, that's clear. Because I think so much of it is. I I just said so much. There's going to be parts that we're going to say, you know, I'm not really sure what what the Lord means. By the way, just when you look at heaven, we don't have any way of... We've never seen, we, we have never experienced anything like that. He's using terminology that, quite honestly, we can't wrap our arms around completely. So we're going to walk away saying, well, I think this is what he's pointing at. Because it's so wonderful, and it's so beyond, and my, my son was telling me, that, you know, our eyes only see a certain amount of the color spectrum. Is that correct? That was a while back. I, think I, I thought my memory was good. Um, but, the, you know, I think of the same way when it comes to spiritual truth. We have only just got a glimpse. It's the glimpse that you need to know. It's the glimpse that's going to get you there with faith and trust and confidence in who the Lord is. But it's just a glimpse. I'm sure when we step on to, you know, finally, whoa! And it's just going to be like, wow, I, I didn't get that. I mean, I took the first step, but there's a thousand steps more of understanding, Right? What he gave us is correct, but it's not the full picture. And that's all we have to be. We just have to trust him, right? So, figures of speech are built on literal meaning. All right, let's give you some. See, a figure of speech ought to strengthen and clarify a literal truth. That's the point. A figure of speech ought to. this If it's doing its job, I mean, if we're understanding it, not that it's doing its job, but we're doing our job, it should strengthen and clarify the literal truth. When... When Peter talks about Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. By the way, the word devour doesn't mean nibble. It means gulp. Consume. Kill. A roaring lion? Well, what is a roaring, roaring lion? Many times after a lion was fed, if I'm understanding correct, they would roar. Like, I'm the greatest. I killed. I ate. i have destroyed. Well, you can... I mean, that's... Wow, okay. I mean, he's not a lion. But you get the idea he's out to destroy. That's the point. And so did that figure of speech, did that, did that um, way of explaining Satan clarify and strengthen a literal truth? Is Satan the destroyer? Yeah, in Scripture it says that. So now tells you he's like a roaring lion seeking you mean devourer. When he goes after you, by the way, this is important. He is not looking to nibble; he is looking to destroy you. He, Satan wants to destroy you, and if you are a leader in the church of the glorious one, Jesus Christ, just understand he wants to destroy you more. Right? I've often thought, what the like? Let's take a man, David, Jeremiah. Can you imagine if after all these years he was found to have cheated on his wife? I mean, Donna just went like this. Like the pain is there. The pain, just the pain. Like, oh, Right? Isn't that true? I mean, he wants to destroy you. Roaring lion. Antichrist in Revelation 13 is described as the beast out of the sea. Now think about C is um, is used in scripture. You saw it in Daniel seven when we were there. Uh, C represents the polluted, turbulent humanity because we saw those four beasts come out of the sea. And here, this guy is called the beast. Now, what is a beast? Non-feeling, just ready, just out for himself, like a beast. Take a beast, you know. Take the lion. Take the bear. They just destroy. And that's how Antichrist is seen. Not like a man. He's just the beast out of the sea. I mean, it just gives you that vividness. Well, a strict literalist would say, well, what do you mean he's a beast? What do you mean Satan is a lion? No, no. We under- oh, I love this one. Christ is identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. What, John saw Jesus coming towards him, John 1, and what did he say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away what the sin of the world. Now you think about okay he used the word lamb what am i supposed to picture Jesus as the lamb as a, no no like a lamb. I'm sure the Jewish people in that day and age would have gone right back to Isaiah 53 and in verse 6 it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Next verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. Right? So when, when John, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he's just that, using that, The Lamb of God. Sacrificial system. Christ would come. Christ would come. Christ has come. And He's going to be like the sacrificial. He's going to be the sac- sacrificial one. Whereas all these lambs, the millions of lambs before that, could not only but cover sin, he was going to take away the sin. You know, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? And so here we have figure and a description of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. And it was so poignant, so specific. He takes away, he doesn't just cover. He's pointing to Jesus as the substitutionary atonement, the one who's going to be able to give the final sacrifice. And, and again, let's, let's test what my, um, my first thought was. The figure of speech ought to strengthen and clarify a literal truth. Did that just do that? Like when you hear he's the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sin of the world, did that strengthen who Christ is? The fact of the atonement. Again, that's that. That's how we. That's what I mean when I say uh, the literal principle. David Cooper states that what has come to be known as the golden rule of interpretation. When the I like this. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Now, again, sometimes you have to dig deeper. Therefore, every word at its at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in, in the light of related passages. Ah, let's forget the rest. It's too long of a quote. The point is this. If, if it makes sense, then just take it at that. Oh, behold the Lamb of God. Oh, I understand it exactly. And you know what? The Jews of that day got it. I know what you're talking about. You're saying one's coming that's going to be greater than all those sacrifices. By the way, the animals, were they, were they guilty... Those little lambs that were slaughtered? No. They were innocent. And yet they had to be perfect. Right? They had to be perfect in the sense of, uh, as far as their physical, no blemishes. And yet here would become one from the, from God himself. God himself is going to come. He's the perfect one. Yet without sin. And he's going to be the perfect sacrifice for us. By the way, that's what Christmas is all about, right? Christ coming, the perfect sacrifice. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice? The one who died in your place, took your sin, took your guilt. I'm I'm very concerned that we sometimes hear um, that, you know, salvation by the grace of God, but we don't add the word alone. In other words, Jesus Christ alone is the Savior not Christ plus works it's Christ alone he has saved us it is his sacrifice that is sufficient it is his sacrifice that can forgive he alone so that's the first principle we're going to hit that over and over again the literal principle not strict woodenism or wooden, <laughs> wooden interpretation but a normal ordinary plain use of language number 2 when interpreting symbols look for a built-in interpretation we're going to be moving Quickly now, when interpreting a symbol, look for a built-in interpretation. Now, Again, I gave you three steps. Remember, when symbols are employed, they refer to something that is literal. Symbols are always built off the literal. Or you could say it this way, if you didn't have a literal meaning, then it would be basically a symbol based off of a symbol based off of a symbol, and ultimately it's just meaningless. A symbol has to be based off of something that is literal, something that is known. That's the first big one. Symbols communicate truth concisely. Uh, Step number two. When you look at symbols, sometimes you can find it, you can find the answer, I mean, what is it representing, right in the immediate context. So look at the immediate context. We saw this when it came to uh, Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 2? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that haughty, arrogant man went to bed one night and he dreamed and he dreamed and he dreamed and he dreamed this dream and he wanted the interpretation, right? I mean, he was arrogant and he was ruthless. He calls all his wise men, you give me the interpretation, you don't give me the interpretation, you're dead men. I mean, I've been paying your salary, you better, you know, this is Payday. They're all like, man, how can we do it? Give us, the inter- give us the dream and I'll give you the interpretation. Remember what happened? Daniel 2. Uh, Daniel, you know, like, let's slow down here. God, and he prayed and beseeched God. And God gave him the interpretation. Now, the reason I bring you to that passage is, it says in Daniel 2.38, immediate context. Chapter 2 starts with uh, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, uh, dreaming. By verse 38, we find out the interpretation, at least part of the interpretation, because Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You are the head of gold. Remember, there was this massive, uh, as some say, the metallic man. He had a head of gold, he had shoulders, arms of silver. You know, his legs uh, bronze, and then his, well, his, his final legs, his thighs bronze, his legs were, were iron, and then his feet, though, were iron and clay, and what it represent was five different kingdoms, and we're actually at the ankle, and there's been a time frame called the church age. But the point is this, you, you might say, well, well, the head, well, it gave the interpretation within 38 verses, if you just keep reading, I, I'm a, I'm over the years, I've read so many, obviously, commentary, uh, commentary, uh, commentaries and such like that. And what's funny to me is how often the answer to questions are just found in the text, and yet the commentary, it's almost like he's writing and not reading ahead, like right there is the answer. And so often, you're going to find that. You're going to find that over and over again in Revelation. Question asked, just keep reading. Um, actually, Revelation chapter 1 is an example of that. Remember when it says that Jesus is walking among the uh, lampstands and he holds the seven stars? Just read to the end of the chapter. It says, well, the lampstands are churches. The stars are the messengers. So, you know, immediately the, the symbols have meaning even within the context, just the immediate context. Now, sometimes you have to look at a larger context. That's step three. If a symbol has no clear interpretation in the immediate context, then you have to go to the whole Bible or another portion of Scripture. One Jewish writer wrote that uh, the book of Revelation is the grand central station of the Bible. You know, New York City, grand central station, all, all I'm assuming all trains go to there. Think of Revelation just like that. All 65 books that have preceded it, Go to that final book. What the book of Revelation does then is actually chronologically brings you right through all the other prophecies and wraps the entire Bible up. It's like the grand central station of the Bible. So you just, sometimes it's the larger context that you absolutely have to have in order to understand the passage you're in. In Revelation, the Revelation contains 404 verses. Catch this, 278 of them Allude to the Old Testament. So the Revelation, or Revelation, let's go, goes back to the other scriptures 278 times. Over and over, you're going to see allusion to the Old Testament. So basically, all the scattered Old Testament verses and events are put in chronological order by the time you get to the book of Revelation. That's real encouraging to me. Oh, it's not just an enigma, it's not just a mystery. No, basically what, this is what he. God wants to wrap it up. God wants to be known. God wants to be revealed, right? God wants you to get it. You're not going to get it from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, complete picture. you know what? Got to tell John, he's going to write it down. They're going to get it then. That's the book of Revelation. It's the Grand Central Station. Everything comes together. And then you say, Oh, now I understand what Isaiah was talking about. How about principle number three. By the way, this is a very, very important one. Compare scripture with scripture. The best interpreter of scripture is the scripture. Now I didn't say this. The best interpreter of scripture is John MacArthur. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. 2 Peter 1.20 Knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any, in, uh, any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, there's no private interpretation. That's the first part. But then, it, how did it come to us? Well, holy men were moved by the Spirit of God. Holy men... We're moved by the Spirit of God. That means the actual author of Scripture is not the... F- by the way, did you know that uh, the Bible, it took 40 different authors, 1,500 years to produce one book, right? But that one book was, pre- was produced because they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is God's book. And so if, if we really want to understand God's book, we have to go to God. We have to be dependent on Him. We have to make sure that we really do understand that this was really composed by the Holy Spirit, because again, no prophecy is to be interpreted by itself. By the way, that's what it means by any interpre- uh, any private interpretation. You can't take one prophecy and say, b- by the way, not just let me use a different word. You can't take any teaching and do that. You will. People have gone way off base because they'll take one teaching or, excuse me, one passage and build an entire theology on that one passage. You can't do that. It, it can't be of any private interpretation. It has to be that the Scriptures speak of the Scripture. There's only basically one final piece that's really pretty much completely new, and that's the last two chapters of Revelation. 21 22. Heaven, really you haven't seen much of that. A little bit of Isaiah, beyond that. It, I mean, it's, you know, if, if you want to say new... Scripture has to interpret Scripture. When you see Antichrist, (coughs) well, we've seen Antichrist. We saw him in Daniel 7, Daniel 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, but then finally we see him the beast out of the sea. But you saw him. You saw him at different places throughout Scripture, and now he's just putting a little bit more understanding on who this guy is. Tribulation, we saw that in Isaiah 24. If you go to Isaiah 24... But again, you really see the tribulation, Revelation six through 18, chapter six through 18. Most of the book of Revelation is on that tribulation. And you can say the same thing about second coming, millennium, passages, passages, but now revelation paints the picture, we get it all because it's the grand central the, the train came in, and now we can understand it. As we compare scripture with Scripture, we gain a clearer more comprehensive picture of what God is doing. What He will do, how He will do it, and sometimes even why He he did it. You know, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, that's why, yeah, we have to go back to Isaiah and Jeremiah, see Daniel, see Zechariah, see Malachi. God wants to... God spoke. God wants to be heard. God wants to be known. So... Don't come to any conclusion by one isolated passage. No single prophet received the entire picture. And I would say this: it takes a lot of hard work. It's what we call progressive revelation. God gave us a piece, and He gives us another piece, and gives us another piece, gives us another piece. But by the time you get to all sixty-six books together, okay, we can understand what, what God is doing. Don't understand everything? We don't understand everything, but yeah, I understand big, you know, Genesis 3, he will crush Satan's head. Hmm? New Testament, oh, the Lord is going to be victorious over death and sin and Satan himself. Give us a peace, build it, got it, because we understand scripture. Number four, be aware of time intervals, time intervals. Uh, could you show that we, when, in, when we were in Daniel, I showed you this. Many times, Scripture is like this. Now, this is referring to the, the, um, the leg and the ten toes, uh, the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. But just think of it this. When it comes to prophecy, many times, this is how it is. You see a peak. Think of that as a mountain peak, and then a second peak. And, but what you don't see is the, the, um, the interval. You don't see the interval. This happens all the time with the, the, the coming of Christ. You, you, you read about the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, but you don't realize, wait a second, he goes from one word to the next word, and there are hundreds, actually thousands of years, between the first coming of Christ, right? A.D., let's say zero, and we're now two thousand fourteen, right? 2,000 years, and yet, in the verse, you didn't see that. Let me, let me give you a, a couple examples. These are Christmas, ex- well, this one is a Christmas example. For unto you a child is born... Unto you a son is given. That's incarnation, right? That happened 2,000 years ago. Next word. And the government will be upon his shoulder. That hasn't happened yet. That's future. See, but Isaiah is writing it down, and even within the same verse, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, I've preached on that message, I think, two or three times Christmas season. Is that true? Absolutely. That is true to us. We've been grafted in. But that specific passage is specifically talking about the nation of Israel. There's coming a day when they will see him as the Prince of Peace. That's at the very end of the Tribulation, right? So there's this huge gap. And we just read along in the passage, and they would have too. And all of a sudden, wait a second, why did the Messiah die? Well, because we didn't understand uh, the gap. It wasn't for us to understand. Look at verse 7, the next verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it and, uh, with judgment and justice from that time forward. I mean, it's definitely the second coming. It's when he sets up the Davidic kingdom on this earth for a thousand year reign. Let me give you one more interesting one. This is found in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. We find him, go over to Luke chapter 4. Let's just do that. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Now again, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue of the Sabbath day. That's what the custom of the Lord was. Going to the synagogue of the Sabbath day. By the way, Sabbath day was special. This is not Sabbath, this is Sunday. But I trust that you have in your week a special day given to the Lord. And he stood up to read. So he's been, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he's reading, I'm telling you, out of uh, Isaiah 61, it says this exactly. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. Now, notice what they happened. And he gave, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all those who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a passage from Isaiah about him. Now, this is why their eyes were fixed on him. Because he never finished the verse. See, the rest of the verse is this, and the day of vengeance of, of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them, the, uh, them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And what that is is the second coming. And, and they were like stunned. It's like we never finished Because all he was emphasizing what? Oh, it's not there. First coming. Today, this has been fulfilled. Their jaws dropped. I thought I was waiting for a a Savior that was going to rescue us. No, that's coming. That's coming. Someday, the rest of that passage will be fulfilled to the Jews. When Jesus Christ comes, and every eye will see, and every heart that is left will repent of the Jewish nation. They, they will return to him. The first and second coming is a huge, where you see this all the time, second coming, first coming, second coming. Last principle, the law of double reference. And I don't even have time for it. If you look at Isaiah 7.14, it says that there's a, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Double reference. I believe that in Isaiah 7, he's referring to Ahaz, I believe there was a virgin, a young woman, who had a child that was assigned to the Israel. But, but in Matthew one twenty three, what do we see? Jesus Christ wasn't born of just a young woman. He was born of a virgin. And it was a miraculous conception. And he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. So sometimes you have the law of double reference. Because of time, let me just cl- conclude with three quick conclusions. First of all, this. We should be diligent and dependent. Diligent and dependent. 2 Timothy says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. The word diligent there means to exert yourself. Make haste and exert. It's kind of a double thought. Exert yourself, but do it quickly. Give yourself all to it. And as we approach the Revelation and prophecy, exert yourself. Put some energy into it. If nothing else, I would encourage you to read the book. Read Revelation. Start just reading it. You know, every day, just read a chapter. But exert yourself, that's diligence, but also dependent. Remember, it says that men of God didn't have their interpretation on their own. It was as they were what? Moved by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit's book. We need to have dependence on Him. And we'll say more about that later. So we should be diligent, human responsibility, dependent, God's sovereignty. This is the second thing I would say. We should be confident, not arrogant. Confident, not arrogant. Again, the Word of God is authoritative. And I believe this. We need to speak and we need to teach authoritatively. But that doesn't give me or anyone else the right to be arrogant. We need to be confident, not arrogant. We can arrive at a clear, I'm going to say this, we can arrive at a clear, consistent interpretation of the future events. We can do that. And our, our, our minds ought to be settled. They ought to be firm. There should be conviction on future events. I, I'm not going to back down. I don't believe God wants us to back down on that. It is good to hold strong conviction and views about very, various aspects of the pro- of prophecy. Again, like we saw last week, it gives us comfort and confidence and commitment to God and His Word. But we must not be arrogant. First Corinthians 8 says, Knowledge puffs up. I, 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 this, is one of the, this is one of the main keys of not getting arrogant. Let the word of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ, transform you. When you see his glory, it doesn't make you arrogant, it makes you humble. Right? So really, I'm not going to Revelation to try to figure out who the beast is out of the sea. He's an antichrist. He's an ungodly man that will be thrown into the, 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 uh, the second death, right? The, the fire of hell. But in every, I would hope this, as we study every week, your appreciation and your exaltation of Jesus Christ is going to be there. And that keeps you humble, right? Praise God that he gave us understanding. God has spoken and has given us understanding. Praise God. So we should be confident, not arrogant. And then finally, we should be gracious, not confrontational. First Corinthians 8, again, knowledge puffs up, but what? Love, what is it? Edifies. Love edifies. Gracious, not confrontational. Prophecy can be very divisive. Is that true? Can it be divisive? Is it divisive or divisive? Is it aunt or aunt? (laughs) It can be very divisive. We have to avoid becoming angry with condescending to or confrontational towards those who hold different and various points of view of prophecy. We have to be very careful there. I do believe you have proper interpretation rules. You come to the right conclusions. That gives us no, that gives us no uh, out to be arrogant or confrontational. Justin Martyr, that... Well, he was martyr. That's why he's called Justin Martyr. (laughs) He was martyr back in the first century. First century, that's what, 1900 years ago, right? Long time ago. This is what he wrote, and I think it's. we'll close with these last thoughts. Now, that's my out. Now, we're going to close. Again, he was an early church father. By the way, he held to a premillennial view. Interesting. They even believed it back then. Christ, again, well, millennial Christ will come back for his church before the tribulation. But he wrote this, quote, I admitted to he's writing to someone else, okay, and he just, he said, I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion, i.e., that I'm a pre and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. I mean, he's like absolutely confident it's going to happen this way. He was looking for the return of Christ even then. As you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith are true Christians. Think otherwise. See, he's saying, listen, but there's a lot of other Christians that are true believers, true faithful believers, think otherwise. They think otherwise. End quote. In other words, yeah, there are some others, but I don't have to be confrontational, I don't have to be arrogant. I'm going to be in your face. You've got to believe this. I can't believe you can, be. but you can be. In prophecy, you can be very demeaning to other people. It's really sad. So, healthy, constructive discussion, debate, give and take are helpful and should be encouraged. But attacking, mocking, questioning the intelligence or spirituality of those who disagree with us is always wrong. We must not allow our egos, our pride to get the best of us. We must hold to our prophetic views. We must hold to them, but we must hold to them with an attitude of love and, I believe, an attitude of humility, right? Because when you see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, what does it do to you but just say, Lord, thank you for giving me understanding of your salvation that I can have in your sacrifice. humility and love which is what drives us. That's what drives us to study. That's what drives us to share so that we might glorify Him. Let's stand. Father, again, we thank You that You have spoken through the written Word and the incarnate Word. We thank You that You want to reveal not only Your Son, but truths about the end. And Father, I pray that you would help us to commit ourselves to be diligent, to use the principles at hand so that we might come out with a a clear understanding of your plan. Lord, we ask that we would do this so that, first and foremost, we might see your Son high and lifted up. And your entire plan, that we could exalt you, that even every week we come together, our hearts would be drawn to worship you for all that you have done. Lord, also that we might, as we study, have a commitment and have conviction of the truth. And we would be quick to share, out of love and humility, your plan with others. Again, of the sacrifice of your Son and of his soon return. We look so forward to his return. So, Father, we ask that we would Commit ourselves to these things so that you would be glorified through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.